Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production, available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. The AP Top 25 College Football Podcast is presented by Regions Bank. Hello and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. The season has started and the first weekend was long and interesting, despite the fact that all the best teams won and did so pretty handily. But there was some intrigue and upsets at Florida State and Tennessee. We'll talk with Dan Wolken of USA Today about some of the second-year coaches off to rough starts in 2019. Where does Jeremy Pruitt at Tennessee and Willie Taggart at Florida State go from here? We'll look ahead to LSU at Texas, Texas A&M at Clemson. And I asked Dan, does it really matter what conference is best? Thanks for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us on Podcast One. You can find us on Apple Podcasts. Just about anywhere you get your podcast, you can find us. Please subscribe. And if you're so inclined, give us a good review. It helps college football fans find us. And it helps us find more college football fans. And away we go. On the podcast this week, my friend from USA Today, Dan Wolken. How are you, Dan? Nice to uh, nice of you to come on and join me to uh, recap week one and look a little ahead towards week two and try to figure out what is going on with... Um, is there any patience left in college football anymore? So, again, thanks for coming on. Yeah, no problem. What's up, man? You know, there was not a whole lot of really interesting stuff out of week one because... The really? Po- I found a lot of interesting stuff. Well, well, I'll put it this way. There was nothing that sort of affected playoffs and the, and the contending teams, and everything sort of gets focused through that lens, right? We focus so much on the top and the playoff and things along those lines that when a weekend where there are 23 ranked teams beat unranked teams, it seems like a quiet week. But yeah, I mean, uh, what you just said is actually right. I mean, for those of us who are a little deeper into it and fans who are deeper into it, when we see what happened at Tennessee and at Florida State and some of these other places, eh, there's a lot going on. Let's start. Let's I can almost link Tennessee and Florida State. But let me start with Tennessee and how big of a step backwards is this? Because it's hard to find places where a coach has a loss this bad, and eventually it all works out in the end. Yeah, that's a great point. Typically, if you're losing to a Georgia State, again, no disrespect to Georgia State, Sean Elliott, good guy. I think they've got a program that they're building over there that's going to be interesting in the future, at least within the context of the Sunbelt Conference. But you cannot lose that game if you're Tennessee unless you have something seriously wrong going on in your program because you just have players that are so much better. And I know that everyone wants to talk about Tennessee being a rebuilding job, but it's crazy, Ralph, because all I heard year after year after year was how great Butch Jones recruited there. And he did, actually. I mean, at least if you look at the just rankings look at the and the number you look of at the numbers, right? Yeah, he did a good job recruiting and, you know, it just fell apart at the end for him for a couple different reasons that we can get into, but I don't think Tennessee is a program that Jeremy Pruitt stepped into that just had absolutely no talent. And so for them to lose out of the gates year two, and it's the way they lost. 
I saw a team that looked physically uh, underwhelming and didn't really kind of try to the end. You know, they they just kind of let Georgia State walk all over them when the game got competitive. They just kind of laid down and didn't want to fight to win. And hey, guess what, man? College football is hard. You want to win a game, you got to play hard. And you would think somebody with the pedigree of Jeremy Pruitt coming in there, and even though he's unproven as a head coach, you know, if especially somebody who's been at, at a Florida State, a Georgia, an Alabama, a guy who's kind of got a reputation as a little bit of a maniac in kind of a good way, you know, really intense, for the team to play that way, uh, I think is very, very troubling. And I don't want to say he can't recover because who knows, but it's not a great sign. Well, and somebody will point out, so let's cover this base. Nick Saban in his first season at Alabama lost to Louisiana Monroe. Now you can say, well, that's an embarrassing loss. And so that that could be similar to what just happened to Pruitt in Tennessee with Georgia State. I would suggest a little different when it's year one where Saban was taking over the big mess as opposed to year two. Now, I'm not expecting Jeremy Pruitt to be Nick Saban or to even be what Nick Saban was in year two, where he flipped that thing around and they were contending for national championships immediately. But I do think there is a very big difference between ULM Alabama 2007 year one under Saban and, you know, Pruitt coming into this season where we looked at Tennessee and thought, you know, listen, I didn't expect them to contend in the East, but, I, you know, I thought, listen, Garantano's pretty good. He's supposed to be development. You're right. Just what you had said. It wasn't recruiting. It was development that was supposed to be the issue here. So if Pruitt's got his strength and conditioning guys in there for over a year, that should take care of some of the physical ineptness that apparently was left behind by Butch. And to have a team that finished 2-10 and 10 in the Sun Belt last year come in there and physically run over them seems like a bad sign. It just, I don't know. It leads me to a greater point of, I think sometimes these things can get very negative very quickly and it's hard for the coach to turn it around once sort of you have the negativity enveloping the program. Yeah, there's some examples certainly where people have rescued it from the brink, but generally speaking, yeah, once that, moment of light flashes where the fan base goes, Oh my God, you know, I don't think this guy can do it. It's really, really hard to change it. And there should be an improvement from year one to year two. Absolutely. And I think if you go back, I've done a lot of research on this and a lot of the coaches we think of as, as the best coaches in college football by year two, you kind of got it. Mm -hmm. Like, you saw it not only in the win total, and I think – I don't remember exactly, but but pretty much every national championship coach in the modern era has won nine games in either their first or second year, which is an interesting stat. And, and I think a lot of that may have to do with being a blue blood program. It's easier to kind of get right and get on that path to nine wins because you do typically inherit some talent at, the, at those programs. But at the same time, you can't be going backwards. And you go to the end of last season for Tennessee, and they lost to Vanderbilt. They lost they lost some really bad games. It, it carried over. At least it, it appeared to carry over. And so, 
Yeah, when when you go into that second year, you I think the fan base has a feeling about a coach and whether or not they're going to be able to to get it done. And I don't know if that's fair or not fair, but it, I think there is some evidence that that it's accurate. So Willie Taggart had another second year first game fail. And, I, you know, as bad and as embarrassing as it was for what happened with Tennessee, in my estimation, what happened with Florida State, I think, is worse. Because I think Florida State, I sense there's an element of the Tennessee fandom that wants Jeremy Pruitt to succeed for all the obvious reasons. He is the coach that they picked, quite frankly. Like, he is almost literally the coach that Tennessee fans decided they were okay coaching that team, right? Whereas with Florida State, I suspect that there is an element that we're a little skeptical of Willie coming in the door. Uh, then he goes 5-7 and seven last year, and if there was ever a coach in a program that just needed to, like, okay, we're better now, we've got this thing figured out, we're not necessarily going to contend for a national championship this year, but we are okay now. I think it was Florida State needing to beat Boise State, and they get off to this great first half, and then it goes reverts right back to last year, where they don't, not, not only do they not look good, they don't look organized, they don't look inspired, they look... They look all disheveled, and I just I don't think there was a worse loss this weekend for the mental health of a fan base and for the trajectory of a program than what, ha- what happened at Florida State. Well, and then I saw a quote on Monday from Willie Taggart talking about how, yeah, I'm going to get with my training staff and make sure our guys start hydrating a few days before the game because we got really tired out there. Yeah, just don't and, say that. Just don't even yeah, say it. If you, Even if you think it's true, don't say it. Yeah, and it's one of those comments, and let's just – take it at face value and say that they had not been properly hydrating or whatever in preparation for that game Uh, in Tallahassee, Florida, like it's a very hot, humid place. And you would think that a football staff that has their stuff together would be all over their players about that kind of thing, that exact issue, because there's no doubt Boise state looked like a better conditioned football team. And you do kind of wonder, I've been to Boise. It's a great place, and it's awesome, right? But uh, they're not out there in the the hot, sweaty, 90-degree climate practicing like like Florida State is. And Boise State looked like a way better conditioned football team in the second half of that game and, and handled the elements way better. So that is definitely a tell that, that something is, is amiss. And, and, yeah, Florida State was really bad last year. And in, Another one of those situations, by the way, where Jimbo Fisher, year after year after year, had gotten top five recruiting classes. And I, I think you can look at it and say, oh, yeah, maybe some of those guys didn't pan out. There was clearly some holes along the offensive line, but uh, it's not a program that is completely devoid of, of talent. They've got some dudes who are going to play in the NFL on that team on both sides of the ball. But, yeah, you, you cannot uh, let, let Boise State do that in the second half, even though Boise State's a good team and is going to go on to have a good season. I'm not totally going to give up on Florida State. They can make some adjustments and I think get better, but it's it's not a great way to start year two when you already kind of don't have the trust of that fan base. And that's exactly it. I, I just feel like you're now digging out of a hole and instead of building your program, you are putting out fires and you're trying to do fixes on the fly as opposed to just the steady build, which is what Taggart wants. And 
listen, they're going to have to pay him 17 to 18 million to fire him. So that's not likely. That's probably not happening after this year, unless they were to reel off a three and nine or a two and 10, because then it becomes you start doing the math of how many ticket season ticket holders am I losing? How many checks are not being written? Okay, we'll have to figure out a way to to make this work. That's an extreme situation. Florida State probably has enough talent to beat most of the ACC that isn't Clemson. So again, you'd think it would work itself out. But again, another situation, I feel like, you know, Rich Rod at, at Michigan, I felt like was one of the great examples of this where, man, it wasn't a great fit. It started bad, and that was it. Like, it was over. It lasted, what, three years, maybe even four. But it was pretty much over at the start because everybody had sort of checked out and real and didn't trust him anymore. So it was just a grind from the start. And I feel like that's where we are now. So you think Florida State is in a little better situation to recover. Do you? Th- Let me put it this way. Do you think Florida State is in a better situation to recover than Tennessee? Yeah, I mean, because Florida State actually for a half looked like a pretty good football team. Mm -hmm. So I I would tend to think that there is something there that will translate to a bunch of games this year that will help them win. Now, you can't have these sort of defensive meltdowns and collapses, and and they probably won't when they play the likes of, I don't know, Louisville and Wake Forest and whoever else they've got in the ACC like I think they'll be okay but the question is just whether that's going to be good enough because Florida State is one of those programs where you are supposed to contend for national championships and they look pretty far away from that to be honest. All right. So the other second year coach, well, there was a couple of them. Scott Frost, I think they'll be okay. Hey, listen, at least you didn't lose, right? <laughs> After what happened with Tennessee and Florida State and UCLA is the other one I'm going to bring up. The fact that Nebraska didn't quite live up to the hype and sort of bungled around a little bit with South Alabama, again, that doesn't look nearly so bad when you have comparisons to these other second-year coaches. Let me flip it to Kelly, who I think has the longest leash out of all these guys because of the nature of the fan base and the investment in him and the idea of, like, listen, if this guy can't do it, who can? Do you think the game has passed him by? That's sort of the narrative that's out there, or maybe it has caught up to everybody. You know, the the old uh, Billy Bean phrase, I'm a big baseball guy, you know, about Moneyball and that strategy is, you know, at one point he said, everybody's doing my shit now. Like, so I, I have no advantage because everybody's doing what I'm doing and they have better stuff. Is everybody sort of doing what Chip Kelly's doing now so he doesn't have an advantage? Well, that's really the question, right? That's the key to his whole tenure at UCLA because they're not going out there and recruiting a bunch of dudes, at least on paper. And that's the whole sell job that Chip Kelly's making is, hey, listen, we're recruiting guys who fit my system, who are guys that I won with when I was at Oregon. And we'll do the same thing here with the same type of players don't worry about the stars in front of their name on rivals in 24 seven. And that argument works if your system is producing at that level, but it doesn't work if you're kind of passe in what you're doing offensively and you're no longer different enough that it gives you a, in the words of Charlie Weiss, a uh, decided schematic advantage. So, Yeah, like that's a big question. That is the big question about what's going to happen at UCLA. 
at the same time, like the amount of money they've got committed and tied up in this thing, uh, there, there's going to be an athletic director change there at some point in the next year or so. Um, it's, you know, there's not going to be any urgency for Chip Kelly to win a certain number of games right now, or probably even next year, but you know, in two years, could there be some pressure? Yeah. And, and I think we'll know by then whether or not, uh, he can replicate what, what he had. A couple of years ago, I, I did a story and I'm interested in your thoughts on this and basically talked to some folks in the industry and they said, you know, the problem with the lack of patience whether it's at the fan base level or at the administrative level, is we churn these coaches so quickly that it thins the pool. And maybe some guys who would grow into the job never do. And we end up, again, when it comes time to hire some coaches, it just becomes hard to find anybody who have any kind of semblance of confidence that can do the job. Everybody is a little bit of a roll of the dice beyond, I don't know, urban you know like beyond a handful of guys who have a long track record almost everybody's a a roll of the dice do you sense that maybe the downside or the the problem with the churn the quick churn is creating a systematic failure within the coaching industry to a certain degree yeah I, i guess that's possible but at the same time i do think that the money has gotten so big that for a lot of these coaches you get one five-year contract from a power five school and you've essentially already won you've you've literally won the lottery right because there's only 60 something of those jobs 65 of those jobs you get one of those contracts you're talking about 15 million dollars guaranteed you know that that kind of money changes people's lives and you get one of those contracts and you manage it right you're you're you you get fired you're going to be okay so that changes the whole nature of of the profession and um i think it remains hard to project who is going to be able to handle being a head coach uh or if somebody's going to be effective even if they've got a track record of being effective as an assistant there's just a different element that goes into being the face of a program and managing the personnel, managing the staff, managing all the external duties that you have to do as a head coach. So I, I think, yes, um, the churn is, is probably not great for the health of the profession or of the sport overall, but at the same time, it's a function of the money and the money's so good that if somebody gets churned out, um, They've won just by being through that churn process once. Okay, and let me hit you right there. Let me add on to that point. When you, if you're a fan or if you're looking at a up-and-coming coach and you say, and we had a couple of these a couple of years ago, Jeff Brom, why would he take Purdue? Matt Rule, why would he take Baylor? What Dan just described is why. Like, you just can't wait. You can't necessarily just sort of sit back and say, well, I'll get the next one or I'll have a better option next year because next year may never come. And for these, you know, really good coaches or or just up and coming coaches at group of five schools, there is a clock ticking on how they when they need to bounce. And if your stock is high and you need to go, you can't be too picky about, oh, I, I don't want that job. 
because it might not be. You just need to go and take care of your family and get the job that's available. So I, I bring that up only because I, I, I hear that a lot of why did somebody take that job? Why doesn't he wait, just wait for this job? Why does he just wait for that job? That's not the way it works, man. Your stock is at a certain point at a certain time, and you got to get paid when it when it hits. Because if you wait, you may never get another chance again. Right. And at those group of five jobs, typically, uh, you can maybe put Boise to the side and maybe UCF or whatever. Uh, there's a couple that maybe are kind of above the fray. But well, listen, Dana, most- Dana went back to Houston. They're paying huge money yeah, and doing things but, there. Right? But, my po- but my point is that the margin for error in the group of five is such that when you have a winning season or a couple winning seasons or accomplished things at a particular school that are deemed to be unusual for that school, the odds of you repeating it or doing it at an even higher level are very low because even though you're winning, you don't have huge inherent advantages typically over the other teams in your league. Right. So your advantage could go away fast and your 10 and two team could, could become a six and six team in an eye blink. And then all of a sudden your stock is no longer as high as it used to be. That is the way this thing works in college football and college athletics in general. I'm going to take a quick break, Dan. We'll be back on the AP top 25 college football podcast. I'm talking with Dan Wolken from USA Today. And we'll come back with more right after this. The AP Top 25 College Football Podcast is presented by Regions Bank. And we're back on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo. Dan Wolkin from USA Today joins me. So kicking it forward to this weekend, you know, Tom Herman is in his position where he might be set up for that year. Well, they had a pretty good breakout year last year. We talk about the, the progression of these coaches year one to year two. And for those of us or for those of you who are in on Herman and thought that maybe this could be one of the next great ones, well, he did have a breakthrough in year two. You know, maybe not to the extent of a Nick Saban or Urban Meyer, but there was definitely a breakthrough there. Now they face off with LSU this weekend, some who's DBU, that's going on, that's kind of a fun little sideline. But really the most interesting part of this thing is, and Herman has deflected all the questions, is – how seriously was Herman considering LSU before he took the Texas job? And how seriously was LSU considering Herman before he took the Texas job? Now, Ross Dellinger, our pal from US, uh, from uh, SI, wrote a really interesting story, got great access to Joe Oliva, who sort of walked him through a lot of the details of what was going on. Have you read that story and the one thing I, I felt like was a little bit missing from it, and maybe I'll go back and reread it, maybe I missed this, was the idea that it, it did ultimately really feel like Oliva, I, I understand this is in his words, but Oliva was sort of being played here. Yeah, I mean, my understanding of the situation at the time and subsequent through the years has been that, look, Tom Herman potentially could have gone to LSU, but at the same time, there was a very concerted effort to send the message to Texas, who to that point had been maybe kind of dragging their feet on making the move they needed to make with Charlie Strong and kind of getting their ducks in a row to make a serious run at Tom Herman, that deadlines spur action. And 
LSU having the job open and being ready to hire Tom Herman essentially at any moment was kind of the deadline that Texas needed to respond to. And that if Texas was doing or was going to extend the kind of offer that Tom Herman wanted, he was going to go to Texas all along. That was always my understanding of it. So with this weekend's game, you know, I I, I still sense that there are folks at LSU who are a little uh, worried and skeptical about what Ed Orgeron can do. I think they're set up to have a very good year uh, and looks like they finally have unleashed the offense. Though we'll probably get a little more, a little better idea of, of how just how far they have this weekend. What does this game sort of say about where Texas is? I mean, we always we, we talk constantly about whether Texas is back and things along those lines. Within the context of this game, but maybe in the bigger picture, it does seem like we might be getting to the point where we can take Herman and Texas seriously. And I don't know if this game necessarily will matter that much in the grand scheme of things. I think as long as they play competitive, we're probably still on the right track with Texas. But I'm wondering what your feel is on Herman and Texas heading into this game. Yeah, the one thing about Tom Herman that I I just, I'm the only one apparently who talks about this, but it's just my belief and what I've seen from his teams is that he's really great at getting his guys sky high to play one big game but the week in and week out, he's not demonstrated yet, to me anyway, the ability to, to to have a team that their baseline level is good enough to to beat who they should beat. Right. And I still think right. this Texas team, if you look at them last year, they, they won a bunch of close games. I think Ellinger is a, a very solid quarterback. I don't think he's maybe as, quite as good as some of the – uh, preseason hype, but my my bottom line on Texas as of right now is that they are not good enough that their baseline B game is going to be good enough to go eleven and one or or maybe even ten and two. Like they're going to have to bring it every single week, and I'm sure they're going to bring it against LSU because, like I said, that's what Tom Herman does. But I also think that when that's the way you coach. It's why Nick Saban talks about process so much. It's 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 the process more than the results. It's coming in every day and and not worrying about the outcome and just sort of doing the right things that you're supposed to do and the rest will take care of itself and we all roll our eyes at that. But I think there is a significant point there which is no college football team is going to be able to get sky high emotionally 12 weeks. It, it can't be done. There are going to be peaks and valleys and, and some letdowns. And when you pour everything into the big games, you're going to have a couple of the not big games that you're a little bit flat. And if you're not good enough to win when you're flat, um, that's a problem. So I think Texas is still kind of at that point. I, I'm sure they'll play well against LSU. I just am not sure over the course of the season if I'm buying them as a real contender because I still think they're a bit of a peak and valley program yeah well I also think that what will happen there is I think they're also still building the talent level there to a certain degree and and I agree with you that was very much indicative of Herman at Houston and at the first year first couple of years at Texas they won some games last year where they were totally fortunate because they didn't play at a super high level and now you could say that maybe more talent fixes that problem, but 
that is still something that Herman needs to prove at Texas that he can have that program that sustains and, and, and plays at sort of a championship level every week. And that's why, listen, I don't want to make too much of the Louisiana Tech game, but frankly, it was somewhat heartening if you're a Texans fan to see them come out there and just lay waste to Louisiana Tech, to not mess around. Last year they opened up against Tulsa, one of their first couple of games, and again, they sort of messed around, and it was you know a, a seven or eight point game. And the fact that they didn't do that against Louisiana Tech, maybe that's a sign that you're getting to the point where you're where you're talking about, where you're thinking about process, where your team is taking the game as seriously, taking the game seriously every week to a level where they will play with great intensity every week. The other big game this weekend is Texas A&M going to Clemson. That was a war last year. Mon played totally out of his mind. The Texas A&M receivers played completely out of their minds, and Clemson nearly lost, needed to stop a late two-point conversion to win. It was a 19-point spread, and part of me saw that at first and thought, wow, that's a lot of points. And then you start like thinking about it a little more, and David Hale, my buddy from ESPN, tweeted out, last year's Texas A&M game, Justin Ross played one snap. Trevor Lawrence threw nine passes. Travis Etienne ran the ball eight times. This is not the same two teams that met last year. Yeah, the number's big just for any game between two ranked teams. Uh, Clemson now kind of gets the Bama treatment, at least in terms of the odds makers, and, and they certainly deserve it. Look, in my mind, there's no comparison. Clemson's a better football team than A&M. They're at home. They should win. They should win comfortably. The only thing that would give me pause about that is not the game last year, but rather if you look at Clemson over the last five years of this great run they've been on, they don't really crank it up until you know the, the midway two-thirds point of the season. That is a good point. That has been a pattern where they really start getting rolling later in the season. Yeah, which, you know, honestly I think is – serves them pretty well uh, because you don't want to peak too early. I think that is a thing. You don't want to be so dominant that you develop bad habits that come back to bite you. There are games I think you want to be in as a football team where you're under some scoreboard pressure and you've got to execute that third and two in a key moment, or you've got to get off the field on your defense uh, when the other team's driving on a critical series. Those are things that to me help you later in the year when you get in playoff games. And I think Clemson's actually done a better job of that than, than Alabama, which has kind of just been able to roll people in the regular season and maybe isn't quite as playoff ready in some ways. So I say all that to say, if, if this is a 10 point game going into the fourth quarter and it ends up that, Clemson just kind of has a couple long drives and runs out the clock or, you know, there's a glimmer of hope going into the fourth quarter that A&M could could win. I I totally would get that. But to me, that's just a function of Clemson not being fully cranked because why would they be fully cranked in week two? All right. So the other thing that happens at this time of the year and because everybody's playing non-conference games for the most part, a few conference games here and there is – 
we start very heavily pounding away the conference narratives, right? It was not a great weekend for the SEC, though I would also suggest that the SEC's really good teams did really well. So who really cares if Missouri lost? So I want to get your thoughts on some some of the my conference is better, what conference is better, this is, you know, we're down, this is that the Pac-12 is eliminated, all this chatter. But I want to get your opinion on it, but just to lay the groundwork here, I'm not sure if any of this really matters. And I'm kind of getting a little tired of it because I'm just really not sure if it matters that Missouri lost to Wyoming, right? So I'm just wondering, you know, when you start what conference is better, where are you on how much this, how important these conversations are? Do they really matter? No. Look, this is all a product of the SEC propaganda machine that over the last decade had a huge investment in this narrative that, well, if you made it through the SEC schedule and or you won an SEC championship or you got to the championship game, that you've really accomplished something because you've made it through this crazy gauntlet of games that is unlike anything any other conference can provide. And maybe back in the day where there was a lot of lobbying and poll polls mattered for uh, for the BCS and all that stuff, that there was some residual impact of that on the public perception. But the truth is we're in a different era now. And, you know, Alabama got into the playoff in 2017, despite not having a win over any team that finished in the top 15 of, of the playoff rankings. And the reason they got in is because of their record and because they're Alabama it wasn't because you looked up and down their schedule and thought, man, they really beat a whole slew of great teams. They didn't. And that's not where the SEC is now. And also with expansion, by the way, you have years where the better teams often do not play each other. So it's all kind of a ridiculous narrative. This There's a strata in each conference that – you're talking about teams that have a legitimate chance to make the playoff. It's a not very big strata. You know, in the SEC, it's maybe two or three. In the ACC, it's one. In the Big 12, it's two. In the Pac-12, it's uh, probably zero. Yeah, right now in, it might be zero. In the Big 10, it's, it's you know, two or three. The rest of it, what are we even talking about? So I, I just, to me, this is all part of the propaganda machine that is has surrounded the SEC for, for years, but ultimately it, to me, just, you know, it, it doesn't have a lot of resonance. You know, the funny thing was this weekend at a certain, because we were, we were so focused on, or a, a lot of the focus about Oregon and Auburn was, this was such an important game for the PAC 12, right? Not just for, and I, and I think it is. I think that's, that's a real thing because the PAC 12 could use to be propped up a little bit doesn't have a lot of chances to get some interesting and significant out of conference wins. So I I do think there is, I don't think that is meaningless, but at some, at some point, I think I tweeted something to the extent of like Oregon is about to break the hearts of its fans and the entire PAC 12. And I had a few, you know, what I think were like Washington Huskies fans, uh, but other PAC 12 fans who were like, uh, uh, I'm fine with this. 
I want to see Oregon lose. And that was somewhat heartening to me and somewhat refreshing to me that there are fans who are like, no, 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 we're not dealing with like I'm, I'm rooting for my conference. I will to a certain degree, but I also am really happy to revel in the loss of my rival. That's not necessarily asking you a question as much as me just being like really happy to see that. Because well, at this point for the Pac-12, that's really counterproductive and, and self-defeating. Uh, for other leagues, maybe not so much. But for the Pac-12, they are in such a dire need of credibility building wins that Oregon losing that game is a loss for the whole league, in my opinion. Well, that's true, but I'm I'm just talking about from a fan perspective. Of I'm just happy that there are fans out there who are who are happy who will see their rival lose and revel in that. No, that's what I was saying at, at the beginning of that. Without question, the Pac-12 in general needed Oregon to win that game. There's no doubt about that because because it, again, it will be trans you know transitive property to a certain degree, especially if Oregon is ends up being very excuse me if Auburn ends up being very good, which I think I don't know it's so hard to tell with Auburn they could always go either way, but there's a possibility Auburn could be very very good, and even if Oregon were to stumble, a team like Washington could then sort of take Oregon's win, right? If Oregon beats Auburn and Washington beats Oregon, we can sort of, you know, play that silly game and Washington gets credit for that. I guess just on a very, on a very base level, it, it just was fun for me to see fans of a rival team not really worry that much about the playoff structure and just be happy that the team that they hate lost. Yeah, no, I, I hear what you're saying, uh, but uh, I'll tell you, you know, at some point, somebody from that pack has got to step up, and and it's it's a little bit what separated the SEC, and I think some of the reflected glory that SEC fan bases take when Alabama does what they do is ridiculous, but at the same time, there has been kind of the the aspect of the SEC where the success of, of an Auburn or an Alabama or whatever kind of lifts everybody else, whether or not that's true or just kind of this narrative that makes everybody feel better about themselves. uh, I do think that that has been a big part of why the sec has been able to kind of pound their chest out so much. Right. And a problem with why the PAC 12 went again, why it needs to win these games and has a hard time pounding its chest. Um, In fact, let me just get you out on this with the Pac-12. It is such a big picture issue. And I know, listen, John Canzano from the Oregonian has done a really great job of reporting on the issues within the Pac-12 offices with Larry Scott, many of the missteps he made, the miscalculations he made. And I get all of that. I absolutely get all of those things. But I also feel like Scott has now become sort of a catch-all for all of the problems in the Pac-12. And there are a lot of things that are issues within the Pac-12 that Larry Scott can't fix. There are a whole bunch of buckets there that don't necessarily land on Larry Scott's desk. And to think that, well, it's the commissioner who is the problem and his decisions are what's holding the conference back to a certain degree, but they can't make... USC competent and they can't fix the time zone issues and they can't make the stadiums bigger. So I don't know. I just kind of wondered what your view of where like some of the, how much responsibility lies on Scott's desk that the PAC 12 is going through some tough times. 
Yeah, I agree. I kind of roll my eyes a little bit when some of these issues get brought up as the reasons why the Pac-12 is where it is. Not that people don't have a point about Larry Scott and the spending or the network or the kickoff times or whatever the schedule, the nine-game schedule, whatever the topic that people want to laser focus in on, I think they're all sort of valid in their own way. But the the big-picture stuff, which is recruiting and coaching hires, is not something that he really can do much about. And the coaching hire thing, by the way, is to me one of the biggest and just imagine you're an assistant coach. You know you may make a position coach, a you know coordinator, whatever. You may make three hundred fifty thousand dollars, or you may get offered three hundred fifty thousand, four hundred thousand dollars, to which is a good amount of money for most people. But if you get that offer to live in Berkeley or Oakland, Bay Area, or L.A. or Seattle, and that same offer maybe to coach in Starkville, Mississippi, or Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or Knoxville, Tennessee, or whatever, which one are you going to take? Mm-hmm. You're going to take the one where your money is going to buy you twice as much house, you know, a, a, or whatever. I mean, like, those are real issues. You can't do anything about that if you're the Pac-12, I don't think. And I don't think that will ever be something that a commissioner can solve. Yeah, because even if there is more revenue – they're never going to have quite as much revenue as the other schools and, and pack as the other uh, big schools from the other conferences. And as one of the things Scott points out, and again, nobody likes to hear it from him, and maybe that's his problem. Maybe he's better off not saying some of this stuff publicly or saying it or couching it a little better. But again, he can't make the stadiums bigger. These schools also generate a lot of revenue on their own. Just go, you know, go ask Ohio State how much money it makes before it, it gets the big check from the Big Ten. You know, these SEC schools within with local advertising deals and just the money they make off their stadiums and game days are making a ton of money, too, that Pac-12 schools can't match either. So there's an issue there on a local level on what the Pac-12 schools can do compared to their, you know, their equals or what they consider their equals in these other Power Five conferences. And again... As much as Larry Scott's bet on the Pac-12 network is not paying off, he he's not making people show up to Cal. Like he can't make people show up to Cal games and care, you know, about Cal football and Stanford football. And there is just not as much caring about Cal and Stanford football in their local fan bases, and that's always going to be a drag on the Pac-12. Yeah, uh, there's just certain things that are inherent to each campus and it's what makes college football and college sports really interesting is the this is not like the nfl or nba where the franchises are all sort of set up in the same way they're in different cities and different histories and all that stuff but but they're generally operating all kind of under the same structure in college sports it's just not that way and by the way these pac 12 schools they put a lot of value in excelling in the non-revenue sports, in swimming and uh, tennis and golf and rowing and all this other stuff. And, and in those venues, they compete head-to-head with anybody, they're, and they're great. But football is a different animal, and when you, have more, when you have less money and more sports, more mouths to feed, and you want to be good in those sports too because that's part of your institutional DNA, then there's no doubt that, that it's going to – negatively impact your football product just is what it is 
Dan Wilkin from USA Today, joining me today on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. Dan, kept you more than long enough. I appreciate your time and your insight, and hopefully we will cross paths in a uh, press box real soon. Sounds good, buddy. Thanks. And now, three and out. First down. There is a weird thing that happens with college football fan Twitter, where anything good must be downplayed, but anything bad becomes really important. So new Oklahoma quarterback Jalen Hurts puts together one of the most prolific performances in college football history in his first game with the Sooners. And a wave of fans scold anybody who gets excited about this by pounding home the fact that Houston's defense is awful. Now, it is awful, by the way, or at least it was last year, and I suspect it's not going to get substantially better this season. Of course, Hertz's numbers are inflated by a bad defense. But folks, that's sports. To say you can't take anything away from a 500 yards of total offense and six touchdowns is as foolish as it would be to call Hertz's performance the greatest in the history of Oklahoma football. That's not true either. But still, something can be gained from what Hertz did. Hertz isn't going to do this every game, but Houston is also probably not going to allow 500 total yards to the opposing quarterback every game. Even if Houston has the worst defense in the country, I'm pretty confident it's not going to allow 11 yards per play in very many games the way it did against Oklahoma. The other reason why I have no patience for the crowd who screams about it being just one game, listen, Hertz is an established player. He was a star at Alabama, a two-year starter who led the team to a national championship game twice. We have already seen him be a great player. Now, with the best offensive coach in the country and a few years of improvement under his belt, it's certainly no surprise that Hertz is going to put up video game numbers in the Oklahoma system. What Hertz did was significant and also tons of fun to watch. Second down, before the taping of this week's podcast, I co-hosted a show with Ryan Leaf on SiriusXM's Pac-12 channel, and we talked a lot about Oregon and Auburn. My final takeaway from that game is directed at the nonstop NFL draft coverage that we get, uh, because, of course, in the aftermath of that big game, some of the folks had to talk about what it did to Justin Herbert's draft stock. There is no way to evaluate Oregon's quarterback off that game without considering that he was throwing to a bunch of receivers who have very minimal chance to become NFL players. I don't want to make excuses for the guy, but I really would love to see him with even one or two of the receivers that Tua Tagovailoa and Trevor Lawrence are throwing to. Third down. We talked about this week's marquee matchups, so I'll give you one a little off the radar that really has my attention. Miami is at North Carolina. The Tar Heels won Mac Brown's debut, rallying and upsetting South Carolina. The Canes lost to Florida, but came away with some encouraging signs, especially with quarterback Jaron Williams. This is the first ACC game for both teams, so I don't want to get too carried away here. But if UNC can start, 2-0 2-0 in the Mac Brown era, when almost everybody figured the Heels would struggle to win even one or two of what is a really tough stretch in their first five or six games, we have to consider them a contender to win what seems to be a wide open, as usual, ACC Coastal. On the other side, 
On the other side, I'm interested to see what Miami's offense looks like when Williams isn't being chased around by a couple of elite pass rushers like he was at Florida. Keep an eye on that game. It's a late game. I believe it might even be ACC Network. And I think it'll be a good glimpse of where both of those programs with new coaches are headed this season. That's the show for today. I'd like to thank Warren Levinson, my producer, for making me sound good. As always, you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts and at Podcast One. Please subscribe so you do not miss an episode. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. The AP Top 25 College Football Podcast was presented by Regions Bank.